unless we're prepared to sort of go through to the early hours of the morning, which I don't think we're quite ready for yet. And Arlene would kill me if you knew I kept David out that long anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so we must be practical. So let's go to Romans chapter 15, then verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Edification here means to build up. That's the root word. And it's to build a home, really. It's to build, if you like, a place where God's pleased to dwell, which takes us right back to this temple that we were hearing about earlier. That's really what the, the root meaning of edification is, to build a home and to build a home with the view of God dwelling in that home. So we want to build each other up, that we're more and more able for God to dwell in us in all his fullness. It's not to inform the mind. That's not what the word means at all. It means to build up, to build a home for God to dwell in. So let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, you see it's come three, four times already, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles, and I will sing to thy name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points 
so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles ministering as a priest the gospel of God that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed in the power of signs and wonders in the power of the Spirit so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ and thus I aspired to, aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named that I might not build upon another man's foundations but as it is written they who had no news of him shall see and they who have not heard shall understand for this reason I have often been hindered from coming to you but now with no further place for me in these regions and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem yes they were pleased to do so and they are indebted to them for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things they are indebted to minister to them also in material things therefore when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs I will go on by way of you to Spain and I know that when I come to you I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ now I urge you brethren by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company he was actually paying the price for our redemption he was already looking forward in anticipatory joy he says and I'm going to praise you in the midst of a great congregation he says boy I'll shout louder than the rest of them this is Jesus he could see already that great company that no man could number of every kindred and tribe and nation washed in his blood and as comfortable in God's presence as Jesus so I'm going to praise you in the midst of a great congregation so that when we can all see this together we can glorify God with one accord oh amen utterly accepted as, 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 as comfortable in God's presence as Jesus oh hallelujah so when we all see it together oh what praise meetings will I have then no one sort of with a long face in the corner or feeling a bit out of it. We'll really 
outshine heaven for the praise and glory that we'll enjoy in those days. Wherefore, because of this, verse 7 of Romans 15, accept one another. If that's God's assessment of you, then I've got to accept you, haven't I? God's received you. Who am I to be more particular? Say, well, I'm sure he's a Christian, but not my type. (laughs) Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us. What for? Oh, to the glory of God. That's why he accepted you, because you... Beloved, are capable in Christ of glorifying God. So am I. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. He said, I'm going to choose. I've chosen that one. I've chosen that one. And, and we're going we're gonna to pay for them at Calvary. We're going to baptize them in the Holy Spirit. And then he said, they're going to glorify me. Every single one of them. Cool. Hallelujah. For I say that has Christ become a, a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God? That Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and to the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. You see, Jesus is able to straddle this great divide. He was able to come to the Jews and be their Messiah and be the perfect sacrifice and to be God's perfect way after all the struggle of the law he was the perfect way to God he was the veil which was rent through which a Jew could go what a thought just imagine if you'd been a Jew and all these years the high priest once a year with great ceremony went into the holiest of all once a year with much shedding of blood of bulls and goats and with much fear and everybody else stood outside and watched and now suddenly (coughs) that was the veil being rent (laughs) (laughs) wasn't my shirt (laughs) from top to bottom and the most utter failure of a Jew could now walk straight in isn't it fantastic just imagine how mind blowing it must have been to them And then, equally and wonderfully, he's the way in for the Gentiles. And through his cross, he's reconciled them together to make one new man. Now, if that's true, if Jesus can reach the Gentile on the one side and can reach the Jew, the the real traditional religious Orthodox Jew, and he can bring them together in Christ, if he can take the political extremes like um, uh, the zealot and Matthew, the tax collector, one, if you like, who's part of the resistance movement against the occupying forces and could also take Matthew, who was a collaborator with the occupying forces. He could take these two and make them one. Can you see what a reconciling Christ he is? So there's no difference between us here or between us and anyone out in the world that can't be reconciled in Christ. By the grace of God, and to boast in the right way, in the grace of God, not in the 
any ability of yourselves, but to boast in God's grace and what it's wrought through you. You and I can do it. Do you believe that? Let's start to believe in God in us to this end. And say, Lord, we want to start seeing all this raw, virgin world outside bowing the knee to Jesus Christ and coming in obedient in word and deed, transformed by the power of your Spirit to glorify you in this ever-growing temple of God. That's the heart of God. Haggai put it in other words. He said, go up into the mountain and get wood. Build my house. Okay, he said, you found plenty of stone lying around and you were able to build the foundations with that, but now you've run out of building material. Don't leave it at foundational level while you scratch your head and say, well, perhaps God will send a few more tons of stone from the sky. He won't. Now, our present gathering largely is just stone that was scattered around the district which has come together to become the foundation of God's temple but this is only the foundation now don't let's leave it there for X years and say well how are we going to how are we going to complete the building how are we going to get our 10,000 that God's already promised us here's the answer go into the mountain and get wood go where they've never heard but they're going to hear go where they've never seen and they're going to see go in the encouraging power of the gospel of Jesus Christ believe each and every one of us that through our God we can do valiantly, valiantly. We're, we're to increase in number I believe God said to a thousand by the end of this year at least that's only three each that's all it is just three each and we've done it ever heard of praying hide he died when he was 39 and yet he changed one of the states of India, the Punjab. I've told you this before, some of you. But in the Punjab, the, the, the statistics of 1971 show a 7% seven, seven, Christian population. And all the states around are 0.1%, 0.05%. I said, Lord, why has the Punjab suddenly got 7%? And God said to me, just two words, he said, praying high. That's where that man used to pray. And he came to a place where in faith he was a man who was partly deaf so that he couldn't even learn Punjabi. The mission were about to send him home as a failure. But he learnt how to pray. And soon he'd come to a place of faith where he could believe God for a convert, one convert every day. And then he got to the next stage where he was believing God for two. And then finally he came to a place where he was believing God for four people to be converted on average every day of the year while he was in India. So that man alone in a heathen hostile situation was seeing something like 1,500 people 
in one year, just one man. Not hard, is it? Come on. Let's get this in our spirit, beloved. As house groups, let's say, now Lord, show us how as house groups we're to go out and gather in this wood. How are we to go where you're not be named? To make people see who've never seen and people here who've never heard. We don't want this to go on round and round and round, tickling our ears with more and more and more detail of the glory of the salvation that we've been brought into. Let's go where he's never been heard. You can find people everywhere, just on your doorstep. This England's so heathen. People haven't got a clue what the gospel of Christ is. Not a clue. Let's be encouraged with this tremendous chapter of encouragement. And then in closing, Paul isn't such a great mighty giant. You see, I'm, you see a lovely balance in his ministry. Then suddenly, after this great sort of cry for the ends of the earth and for the lost, and, and even you see when he's going to Spain, it's got to be, going to Rome, it's got to be to purpose. He said, often I've, I've longed to come and see you, but he said, I just haven't been able to because, see, there's, there's necessity for the lost laid upon me. See, it's lovely to have lovely weekends of fellowship to go and see our friends down in Devon and our old college friends up and so-and-so have a lovely weekend of fellowship together. But, you know, this can become terribly selfish. Well, we have people round for a meal and we go, there's to a meal and we praise the Lord and it's lovely, but, you know, we can be so locked in on ourselves. We never, ever quite get round to the cry of the lost around us. Paul says, I'd love to come and see you. But he, says, he says, I just never get the chance, you see, because I've got this burning desire for the lost in my heart. And he tells us at the beginning of Romans, and he tells us again here, that even if I come, he said, I've got to have fruit among you. The zeal of your house is consuming me, O oh God. I want to see the temple finished. I want to see the whole of mankind praising and glorifying God in the prayer, the temple of the living God. These things are nice and sure, he said, well, I'll come one day on my way to Spain. I'll, I'll sort of use that opportunity. You can bless me and pray for me and I'll come in the full blessing of the gospel. I'll only come for a little while because there's Spain crying out for me. Now let this be our heart, beloved. Let this year, which God's already spoken to us about, the year of opportunity, let it be the year of harvest. And let's consider, Lord, how? How are we going to bring them in? Let's have an ambition, not only to minister where others have already laid a foundation, but let's have an ambition to go out where they've never heard and never seen. And bring them in with great rejoicing. Those that sow in tears, it says, in Psalm 126, shall doubtless come again, bringing their sheaves with them with rejoicing. It, they shall doubtless come again. And as you talk to the ordinary man in the street, whether he's a tycoon in some great industrial uh, organisation, or whether he's just an ordinary bloke who's terrified that next week's his last week at work because he's going to lose his job, if you talk to them all, there's a great empty void in each and every one of them. And you'll find that God's working at the other end. That's the amazing thing that I just discovered this week as we've chatted to the plumbers and to the tilers in our house and we've found these men just ripe for harvest.
As if God's just given a little taste. He says, look, see, it's, there's, there's thousands out there like that. What are you doing? Let's believe God that we're going to build a great temple to his praise and the majority of it's going to be wood that we've gone and got for ourselves on the mountains of opportunity that are all around us. Now Paul hasn't got time to waste. He can't get into this let's all bless each other syndrome. But let's get out and, and save and preach while we've got today. Today is the day of opportunity. And then, funnily enough, the last part of Romans 15, this great apostle that raised the dead and shaken the world for Christ, he suddenly becomes a messenger boy. And he says that the, this, is, this is the lovely balance here. He's not some unfeeling spiritual giant. He's, he's a man that can feel for the Jews in their material need at this particular point of time. And in Achaia and uh, Macedonia, they've taken up a special offering. And he says, oh, I he says, I'll, I'll take it. I'll, he, he takes the offering and with great joy, he's going to go on a several weeks journey to, to, to Judea and Jerusalem just to bless them with the gift of the prosperity and the love of the Mac and the Macedonians. The Macedonians, by the way, were, were in extreme poverty. It's like me coming back home from India with a gift for you from the Indians. It's what it would be like. They'd heard of some economic difficulties and said, well, the English have blessed us for, for centuries. Let's bless them. And, and it would make us all cry, wouldn't it? It's happened to me. I've had women come to me in India and, and give me the only chicken they've got. or, or, or And it just absolutely humbles you. I'll never forget when I was in the Naga tribal area, right up in the northeast frontier area, on the borders of China and Burma. And these primitive Nagas, they, there's no shops or telephones, there's no money. It just is that primitive. They all used to be headhunters until quite recently, killing each other uh, to prove their manhood and cut off a head and bring it home. That's how the young men proved their manhood. And then Christ moved across those hills. And we had a wonderful year. It's politically very, very difficult there. And Eileen and I, we went to Nagaland and uh, David wasn't born then. It was Duncan and Rachel. Rachel was just a little tiny girl. And we had enough money to go to Nagaland but we had no money to get back. And as we left civilization behind and just were walking and, and tra trekking through the jungle and preaching in all these villages and people would walk for four days to come and hear the word. They'd sit for three or four days and, we, and they'd make, us, make me preach for at least three hours. That's where I got it from. <laughs> three meetings a day three hours and they'd sit on the hard floor no, no seats just, just with their little shawls and they'd drink in the word of God these previous savage headhunters had come turned to Jesus Christ and then at the end of all that they gave to Arden and I a gift of 1,000 rupees which is a fortune and we just sat and we just wept and they, they, they must have, it was such a precious gift. And in that way, God provided our return journey back to Bombay. We didn't know how we were going to get back to Bombay. And these things are so precious in the sight of God. Here's this great, mighty, 
apostle who's going to become a messenger boy for a few weeks because he just so values this gift of the Macedonians. And what you've given for India and for Korea, I tell you, God values it. It's ever so important to him. And if I go for no other reason than to bless people with your generosity, it's worth going for that reason. Don't feel that God's some evangelizing machine, you know, get them saved, get them saved, what statistics, how many more added, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. No, he's not like that. He's a mighty, compassionate God. And then finally, in closing, at the end of Romans, you'll find it there, is that Paul wasn't a great giant that he didn't need prayer. He said, pray for me. He said, pray for me that I may bless the saints in Jerusalem. He didn't say, oh, you know, I'm the mighty Paul. Wherever I go, it's a blessing. He said, no, I want to bless the saints in Jerusalem. And he said, also, there's a lot of opposition waiting. Pray for me that I'll be kept safe from the opposition. So he wanted to be encouraged by their prayers. He needed them to encourage him as much as he was encouraging them. And that's the wonder of the body of Christ. You may think that some of us blokes up the front, we are sort of always, you know, on top. I tell you, some some Saturday morning, as I got, you know, Ireland had just gone and I came home, I was feeling pretty miserable anyway. And there was piles of stuff on my desk and there was, you know, so many responsibilities and so many daring steps of faith tens of thousands of pounds were needed for this and for that and and suddenly I felt so small I thought what an idiot you little man thinking that you're any good to God and these great purposes of his kingdom and I just I just sort of crumpled and then I got hold of God and I became a big man again in God that's all it's in God I was suddenly gripped by a cold clammy fear you know, the Steve just left his job in St Albans to lead the Christian church. This Frank Gamble's just come out of a hopeless situation in Harrow. We're responsible for these men and for the churches that God's going to build. And, and I suddenly thought, God, I can't carry all this. I'm such a little man. And I felt this cold, clammy fear. And then I got on my knees and within an hour I was encouraged by the God of all encouragement. So let's encourage one another. We're in a great thing with a great God. We're all little, we're all small, we're all nobodies. But that doesn't prevent any of us from doing mighty, mighty works to the glory of God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So pray for me that I'll be a blessing in India because I won't unless something comes from on high to anoint me. I haven't got it in myself. None of us have. Let's be constantly praying and bearing up one another so that the God of all encouragement may keep us all alive with flaming hope that we're going to see all that he's promised us in 1982. Amen. Well, let's pray for a minute, shall we? Maybe one or two of you just feel to lead briefly in prayer and maybe we can sing something.
Guilt against all unrighteousness. Did you hear that? And on the other hand, God's love and mercy and acceptance is given and shown to that which is righteous in his sight. So first of all, God must act righteously in his own sight. He has got to act in a way which is acceptable to his own standards of holiness. Let's turn now on to Romans chapter 3. And first of all, from verse 10, we're going to have God's description of all humanity. You're here in this list, alright? Find yourself somewhere. This is how you once were before God began to deal with you. Possibly, if God hasn't dealt with you, you're still in this condition tonight. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become useless. How? Well, it says in Isaiah 53, each one has turned unto his own way. That's the useless way that they've all turned into. They've all turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. If you hate your brother without a cause, you're a murderer. How many of us haven't committed murder according to the standard of Jesus? I certainly have. Destruction and misery are in their paths. and The path of peace they have not known. How many here have known perfect peace all their lives? Not one of us. Not one of us. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What a summary of mankind. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Or, in the King James, all the world may become guilty before God. So if we come to God and say, God, I'm no better and no worse than anybody else, he says, that's absolutely right. <laughs> and you're all useless. I haven't done anybody any harm, but in the sight of God, we're all, every one of us, sinners in the sight of God and the world becomes guilty before God there's not one who can write up and say Lord it would be unjust if you sent me to hell not one of us can say that no one we all stand guilty before God and if God was to give us what we deserve we'd all go to hell and rightly so if I say I want justice be careful <laughs> be careful so we can only cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. No one can demand anything from God except to have our just deserts which is an eternity in hell. Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight or made righteous in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Alright, the first thing we've got to deal with then is why did God send the law? Because there was a period of time when man just lived for, for a period obeying his conscience but you see when your conscience has become faulty you can excuse things which are wrong in the sight of God you ever done that? yawn, yes you have 
You see, that's our problem. We've got, a, we've got a faulty conscience. It's like having a compass with a broken needle and it gets stuck in pointing the wrong way. So we say, well, I don't see anything wrong with it. Well, that's no criterion, beloved, because you're not capable of deciding what's right or wrong. You can't trust your conscience. You cannot trust what is normal or right in the sight of society. That's no criterion. Because we're incapable of discerning properly between good and evil. We've got a broken compass which cannot point correctly between good and evil. And so God brought into the world through a selected race, the Jewish race, he brought in what is called the law. It was only a sort of an example and a demonstration. And he set before the Jewish the scribes who spent their lifetime sort of nitpicking through the Bible and for a fee, rather like a lawyer today, they would tell you a righteous way to get round the law. And they had all sorts of tricks and dodges to uh, avoid paying a full time. And, and all sorts of ways they had of, of wriggling round the truth. And so we're told here that by the works of the law, no one was justified. But by the law came the knowledge of sin. And so God, having brought a nation under the, the, the bar of the law, he found in that nation not a single person who ever kept the law. Not one. Until, of course, Jesus came. And he didn't so much bother about the law, he just cons was concerned to live in perfect obedience before his father, and as a kind of byproduct, he kept the law. <coughs> he kept the law. Okay? So... God had this problem. Let's go on reading then. Now apart from the law, the righteousness, this is verse 21 of Romans 3, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. See, everyone has sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God, as it says in verse 23. That's the standard. There's the line. Are you as righteous as God? No? Right then. You're a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So none of us can stand before God and say, because of the things I've done, I deserve to go to heaven. No one can stand before God like that. We may be two miles away from God's standard. We may be 10,000, but we're all short. We've all come short of the glory of God. And so it says in verse 22, there is no distinction. Not one. Verse 24, being justified, or being made righteous, as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Let's look at this word propitiation. It's a very important word, and you'll find uh, in some translations they try and change the word to something which isn't really accurate. They, is, it, is it RSV, expiation? Yeah, well that's not the right word. Because behind this, this Greek word is the idea of appeasing wrath. Now the translators of the RSV, they didn't like the idea of a God of wrath. He was all lovey-dovey. Well, all come to heaven, dear. It doesn't matter how you behave. And all this silly nonsense. And so when they faced up with this Greek word, they wriggled around it. They put the word expiation, which simply means to take a sort of a, a dirty uh, sheet and wipe it clean. 
That's to expiate or to wipe out the stain. But propitiation means to pay for and satisfy justifiable wrath. Which is different. Now this is what the blood of Christ did. It propitiated God. God was full of wrath concerning the sin of man and Jesus came and offered a sacrifice which not only, as it were, paid for sin but it satisfied God and he was, his wrath was appeased. It paid for in such a way that he was satisfied. How, how can I illustrate it? Well, let's imagine that uh, I uh, was sitting in my room doing some work and all of a sudden there was a great crash as a football came flying through the window. And I go out into the garden with a justifiable wrath. Who did that? And there's David quaking at these and saying, well, Daddy, I did. I say, well, you better do something about it. Just imagine he was old enough, which he isn't. Supposing he said, well, look, don't worry. And he went and bought some glass and put it in and filled it all up and painted it carefully and everything was put right. And then he said, then you see, my wrath would be propitiated. <laughs> it would be paid for. Be paid. Everything would be put right. I'd be satisfied. Then I'd forgive him. Alright, have you got the idea? There's a propitiation behind this. And we're told that God displayed his justice in that he gave to man forgiveness as a gift by his grace, verse 24, when he publicly displayed Jesus as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, this is the problem that God had to solve. I mean, it was a problem to us, not to God. You understand that? And here was sinful man. God loved sinful man. Man was only guilty and deserved God to pour out his wrath upon him. If you can imagine for a moment a court scene. And here is a judge who's sitting in judgment upon a case. And in the dock is brought a guilty prisoner. Now, the prisoner's guilty, he knows it, the court knows it, but the case still has to be tried. And as the judge looks upon this guilty prisoner, he just feels such a loving compassion for the prisoner. But justice requires that he hears the case and he judges it according to righteous laws. He can't just say, oh well, you look such a nice chap. Never mind, forget it. Because there would be an outcry. It would be the headlines of the newspapers. Judge clears guilty prisoner. What's the matter? What's happened to the law? That's the sort of thing you'd hear, wouldn't it be? It has to be done in a way that's righteous. That, that, that satisfies the righteousness of God. And would certainly have to satisfy the accusations of Satan. And so just imagine, it's not a perfect illustration, but I hope it will help you to understand. So here's the righteous judge. He looks at the guilty prisoner and says, you have committed a serious crime. And according to the law, the maximum penalty is that I can fine you £10,000 or you can go to prison for three years. He says, right, I'm going to sentence you to £10,000 fine gasp in the court and then having passed sentence he then comes down from the, from the judgment seat see as the judge he has to administer the law in righteousness he can't allow 
his feelings towards the prisoner to affect his judgment. He's got to be righteous. But having passed sentence, having given to that man the full weight of the wrath of the law, he, he then takes off his wig and takes off his robes, takes off all his in, uh, regalia as the judge. And now as an ordinary man, having no special appearance that we should desire him, as an ordinary man, he comes down into the court and says, Sir, to the clerk of the court, I would like to be the friend of the prisoner. And now on his behalf, I will pay the fine. And so, everything he has, we'd imagine, is used to pay that fine. Now, righteousness has been done because he passed sentence according to the law. But now love has also been expressed because he himself paid the penalty. Now that's roughly, and it's only a rough illustration, but it roughly explains to us how God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, how God the Son came in human flesh and became God's Lamb to, to receive, as it were, the wrath of God upon him in order that he might freely forgive the sinner. Now that's the first part of this glorious gospel. It's a righteousness of God revealed in that he went to Calvary and publicly, publicly became the propitiation, the full payment and the glorious satisfaction of all God's righteous wrath. Hallelujah. Now that's glorious, isn't it? That's what God did. Now just imagine some proud, stuck-up fellow in that dock saying, I don't want your money. I'd rather pay this penalty myself. You say, well, what an ass. <laughs> and so, right then, if that's what you want, then off you go. You know, there was a case in the United States a few years ago, I forget which state it was in, but it was one of the states, obviously, which still had, and I think still has, the death penalty. And this man was offered a free pardon by the governor of that state. And the, the, the governor of the jail, with great excitement, came to the cell and said, Look, there's a free pardon. You haven't got to die after all. And it was just a few days before he was to be executed in the electric chair. You know what this man did? He said, I don't want your free pardon. Somehow there was a stubborn pride in that man, even a few days away from execution in the electric chair. I don't want your free pardon, he said. I'm not going to go crawling to anybody. You take it, and he just tore it up, and he refused that free pardon. You know what happened to that man? He was actually executed. That really happened. And it just illustrates how stupid some people can be. And that's what's happening all the time in the world. Here is God, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, there's God in Christ beseeching us, be reconciled, be reconciled. Put it right while you've got the chance. But the only way we can put it right is to receive the only way that God can righteously pardon us. And that is we've got to come and say, my only hope, my only possibility is to receive as a free gift this glorious righteousness which is given to me as a gift through Jesus Christ. This is God's righteousness revealed in the cross. Now, have you done it? Have you done it? I remember just 
a few years ago in our little flat in Bombay, we were being visited by uh, some Kashmiri people. These Kashmiri people, they carve this wood and they go around the houses after they've made some, they travel down to Bombay and they go around the flat selling this Kashmiri wood. It's very famous and you've probably all seen some of it in our home. It's usually made out of walnut and it's beautifully hand-carved. And this couple were selling Kashmiri wood from door to door. There was an older man and there was a young lad who must have been in his late teens, early twenties. And he sort of peered around the door and he saw all our bookshelf full of books, most of which had something about Christ in the title. And he was obviously interested. And so he went away from the flat and then a little while later, by himself, this young man came back. He'd given his father the slip. They were Muslims. And he came back and he said, I was so interested to, in your book. So he said, come on in. So he came in and sat down and we began to talk to him about Christ. You see, in the Muslim religion, there's no love. It's a very severe and harsh God that the Muslim serves. And as we sat with this young man and we told him the story of the cross, of how God so loved the world that he, he found a righteous way to come and pay for the sin of man. This young man in the chair, you know, he began to cry. He just began to weep with the wonder of Calvary and he said, fancy God doing a thing like that. Fancy God doing a thing like that. And, you know, and I thought as I watched this young man cry as the first revelation of God's love and of God's righteousness wonderfully joined together in the cross began to dawn in his heart he began to cry I thought I've never seen a Christian do that you know we take it so glibly oh yeah Christ died for us hallelujah but oh beloved let's get hold of it have you ever ever been and said God just show me what Calvary is all about because I think we all need this we need a breaking before the cross to see the wonder of God's love and to see the awfulness of sin to see that that was essential in the sight of God. Because of God's righteousness, there was no other way. No other way at all. You see, righteousness had to be seen to be done. It had to be done publicly. He was publicly shamed and humiliated and, and suffered and died because God had got to declare to all the principalities and powers, to all the angels and to his own heart, I'm utterly righteous. And what a glorious way it is. And the only way we can come is to say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Which brings me on to the other two-thirds that I want to talk about, not at such great length, but important all the same. And that is to understand how we receive this righteousness. Because basically there are two ways. Even as a Christian, we can seek to be justified by our works. Now, our works. I know theologically we don't believe it, but in practice, many of us are still living a kind of old covenant Christianity. Where we're seeking to be righteous before God because of the things we do, or because of the things we don't do. We may sort of, you know, have a week where we, we don't shout at anybody, and we're ever so loving, and uh, we get up every morning and have a quiet time, and we read our Bible, and we get something out of it, and then we perhaps we are privileged to speak at a meeting, and it goes well, and we think at the end of the week, well, I'm really right with God, and we're starting to feel almost we deserve God's goodness and kindness, you see. And we're living according to the law. And God shouts to us in the pages of Scripture that by the works of the law, be they Christian, evangelical, charismatic, 
Bedmond, Garston laws, or whatever they are, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in this sight. And furthermore, by failing to do them, if God's decided to set his love upon us, we cannot be unjustified. That's the security of it all, beloved. That's the thrill of it. If God's decided to love you, that's it. If he's decided to make, declare you righteous, well, let devils say what they like. Let men exclaim, but God said it. As Paul writes in the Roman letter, chapter 8, he said, Who is he that condemns? It's God that justifies, and if God's justified you, no one else has got any right or ability to say anything against God's decision that you're righteous in his sight. Hallelujah. Now this doesn't mean we live any old how, because that of course is taken care of in Romans 6 and 7. What? Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So let's look for a moment at the two kinds of righteousness. The righteousness which comes through works, and the righteousness which comes through faith. Because we're told, we read it just now, and we read it in Romans 1, that the, God, the righteousness of God, verse 22 of Romans 3, is through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, and there's no distinction. And if you go back to Romans 1, it says it there in verse um, 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's to everyone in verse 16 who believes. So we've got a righteousness which is by faith. And we've got to see how this is different from righteousness which is of works and why God insists on righteousness by faith. Well, the answer is this, that if you seek righteousness which is by works, you will never ever become righteous. <clears throat> if you seek righteousness by faith, you will truly be as righteous as God. Or to put it in simple everyday language, one works and the other doesn't. That's why. <laughs> why do you always pull that knob, Dad, and to make the car start? Well, because that's the knob that makes it start. <laughs> if I pull the other knob, nothing happens. Is that too simple for you? <laughs> Righteousness by faith has two phases to it, which we've got to understand. Phase one is what we might call and the Bible calls and theologians call imputed righteousness. You know what that means? It means something given to you on account. It's given to you before it actually is. Someone in this fellowship, not here tonight, gave me a form to fill in a few weeks ago, which declared that uh, on the 5th of April they were going to be married. And so they have a passport issued to them with an imputed name. That is Gwyneth. It's already issued in the name that she will have, presumably, <laughs> on April the 5th. And they're going immediately away on honeymoon, presumably abroad, I'm not telling you where, I don't know. <laughs> so you can torture me, I still can't tell you. But you see, here there's an imputed name. Can you, can, it's, it's, can you see what I'm saying? And then it, it's written down in this form that I, Alan Vincent, do solemnly declare that on that day I solemnly intend that there shall take place a marriage that I shall solemnly commit and if therewith anything happens or fails I hereby testify that I shall lawfully notify thee before the day. 
You know, that sort of jargon is all there, you see. So, you see, it's not fully imputed, but it is imputed. You see, there's an imputation of something which hasn't yet happened. And so, as far as the passport office is concerned, Gwyneth has been regarded as someone married when she isn't married. And she's been given a passport to that effect when actually it's not yet happened. Alright? Now, that is the best illustration I could think of. If you can think of a better one, please come and tell me. But that's the best I could think of to give you an understanding of what imputed righteousness is. That is, it's attributing something to you which hasn't really yet taken place. And that's phase one. God imputes to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How righteous is Christ regarding his Father? Utterly righteous. He's utterly right in his sight. And that's the righteousness which God's given you. So that when God meets you, when you pray to him, when it comes to love or fellowship, there you are as right in the sight of God as Jesus. Hallelujah. That's the glory of it. And why is that necessary? Because it's essentiary, first of all, to bring you into relationship. Because the life that's going to make you actually righteous can only come from God. Because there's a second stage of righteousness, that is imparted righteousness. Which means you actually have it in substance and in fact. After, after April the 5th, Gwyneth will have the marriage state not only imputed to her, it will be imparted to her. Right? It will be an experiential fact. She'll say, oh darling, we're married. <laughs> I, as I assume. <laughs> <laughs> but not with God see that's the thrill with God if he imputes it he's already guaranteed the impartation it says in Philippians 1 and verse 6 he that has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ if I start something says God I always finish it and no one's too hard for me hallelujah <laughs> no one so if I impute to you righteousness, I guarantee the finished job. The impartation will come automatically. That's the security of it. Now this righteousness comes by faith. First of all it's imputed, and this brings us into relationship, and then by the flowing of life, as a result of that relationship, righteousness becomes an experimental fact. Uh, if we can use the illustration that Jesus used in John 15, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. That's what he said, wasn't it? Where does a branch receive its life from? From the vine. If you cut a branch off from the vine and separate it by even one millimetre, what happens to the branch? It withers and dies. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, severed from me, you can do nothing. But a branch which doesn't remain grafted into the vine will die, and it will be gathered up and cast into the fire. You see, we never, ever, ever will have a life within ourselves that can please God. 
But we can draw from God a life which pleases God. God's life. But you see, here's the problem. You see, here's a branch which knows it needs to get into the vine to draw the life, but feels unworthy. It says, oh, I'm just an unworthy branch. You see, perhaps I'll stay a respectful four feet away. And say, here's the branch hanging here, saying, well, I don't feel quite as worthy as Alan. You know, and so I'll hang here in a sort of, I'll sit in the back row. <laughs> and I'll hang here and say, well, I don't quite feel the same. So I'll hang here, you see. And as a result, is no life flows. And, and as a result, the branch sort of withers and dies. You had a rotten week, well, it serves you right. It serves you right. Because you don't believe God. God says, if I have received you, you are as righteous in my sight as Jesus. Now, do you believe it or don't you? Do you? Well, you better. <laughs> and when you say, I'm as holy as Jesus, then boink, straight into the vine. You're not embarrassed. You don't feel, I must keep a respectful distance. You get right in there where your life is. Am I putting you under threat? Oh no. I'm alright. I better watch it. That's I shall hang myself. <laughs> he doesn't want my life. <laughs> Can you see it? Now it's, it's a tremendous truth. So simple, yet it's so absolutely true. That if you feel dreadful, if you feel unworthy, all the more reason to get into that vine because that's where the life is. But if you allow the devil to con you into separating yourself because I don't feel quite as accepted, I don't feel quite as loved, I don't feel that God can really shower me with the same reception that he does others, then you hang at a distance. You say, there you are, that proves it. I don't get blessed like these other people do. Well, it's because you don't believe God. Get in and start to draw. And when you're joined, the life from that, from that vine, the trunk, flows through the branch and the, the branch is then able to, to produce fruit. Don't say in your heart, oh, who can ascend in heaven? This is too high and put it down. Don't say, oh, who will descend into the abyss and bring it up because this is very, very deep teaching. Is you think it's deep tonight? It's plain simple, isn't it? Childlike, ABC. And yet this is the gospel. Don't say, oh, it's up there, we've got to sort of climb some, you know, I'm pressing on the upward heights, you know, all this. <laughs> it's not up there that we might attain to it. Or deeper, deeper, down into some depths here. It's neither there, not up nor down. Where is it? It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we're preaching. As If you want to read, have time, go and read Deuteronomy chapter 30 when you get home, which is the Old Testament passage on which Paul is drawing, where uh, Moses is talking about going into the promised land. He says, now don't say, oh, this is too hard or it's too difficult. He said, the word of faith is near you so that you can do it. You can. I can. Do all things. Through Christ who strengthens me. It's not up there, it's not there. It's in, the, in your mouth. And what you do is confess it. You confess it. You start to declare with your mouth the truth of God. Get to the mirror and say, You're lovely. Go on, say it. I do. <laughs> if I do, anybody dare. <laughs> I do. I say, I, honestly, I do. I say, you know, you're lovely. Jesus loves you. You're beautiful. 
ever since I was baptized in the Spirit, I've never lost this revelation of the love of God. Not really lost it. I just know how received I am. And that's the, the spring of my life. Confess it. Confess it. And then it says that with the, the mouth, confession is made. And with the heart, a man... Let's go down to verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Okay? So what happens is that you become as righteous as God in practice by confession of the truth. It says of Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as right. That's imputed righteousness. As soon as he said, I believe you, Lord, God says you're as right, you're righteous, Abraham. You don't have to do a thing. And then gradually God got to work on him to bring him to the practical righteousness. He went through many experiences, but the moment he said, I believe you, Lord, he said, right, you're righteous. <coughs> If it hasn't happened to you, it can happen to you tonight. Just like that, you can be as righteous in the sight of God as Jesus. And then as you go on confessing, from faith to faith, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's the power of the Gospel. You become God's righteousness in flesh and blood, walking the face of the earth. In practice, you become increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. From the imputation, impartation comes by degrees through faith to faith. From faith to faith. From faith to faith. The more you believe, the more you're in. The more you confess, the more it becomes a reality. And so you go on progressively until you are utterly, totally, completely saved. There are three ways that the Bible speaks of salvation as the past tense. We have been saved. It speaks about it in the present tense. We are being saved. It speaks about it in the future tense. We will be saved. It's not a contradiction. Because as far as God's concerned, it's done once he started. Hallelujah. And yet it's a process still going on. And it's something not yet fully attained to. All three are true. Hallelujah. Now there's nothing I need to do except believe. The righteousness which comes by faith, it believes and it speaks. And God does the rest. Amen. Glory. And so we find ourselves... It's bringing us to focus on his word. I want to read Romans chapter 16. I hear that David exhorted you all to bring bottles of champagne <laughs> to celebrate this great event. I've got lots of room in my boot. <laughs> I reckon I can take up to about 300 in the boot. So if you really feel like celebrating, obeying the word of the elder. <laughs> but I guess it's been what probably certainly all of two years since I began to go through Romans and various things have happened along the road.
But I must say, when we finally got to Romans 15, it was absolutely spot on, I felt, in the timing of God. So I was wondering, even though it was announced, whether we would get to it tonight. We must, we must be open to what God wants to do with each meeting, mustn't we? But I just feel it's appropriate, and I feel the way the meetings just ended up homing in on people, ordinary people, is just right in line with uh, Romans chapter 16, because you'll find it's just a list of people. And it's the sort of passage which one tends to leave and say, why this long list of names? What can it possibly mean? So let's read it through, <coughs> starting at verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant, or more literally, a deaconess of the church which is at Centria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila that's a sort of pet name for Priscilla my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who for my life risked their own necks to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus, and Junius, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ, Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. If you don't know how to pronounce words, say it boldly and people... <laughs> <laughs> Most people will think you're right. <laughs> Verse 11. Greet Herodion, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Trephina and Trephosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus, Philologus, sorry. <laughs> Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, Keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances 
contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Amen. <coughs> Most of this chapter, as you've just discovered, is, is a list of names. And it's one of several lists of names which you find in Scripture. And I guess we often wonder, well, what are these names for? Why has God seen fit to record them in Scripture? It seems such a, well, a bit of a letdown after the great marvellous doctrines that we've been looking at in Romans to end up with just a list of names. And I want us to look at, first of all, the value of names and then to look at the names of some of the people that are listed here. Because I've discovered that studying these lists of names has brought great harvests of rich spiritual treasure. First of all, names are important to God. And in a name, again and again, God is seeking to encapsulate his ambition or his purpose for the person that he names. His names are just not by chance, but they're particularly chosen. And it's very interesting in Scripture to particularly study where God changes a name. Like, for example, Abraham becomes Abraham. Exalted father becomes the father of a multitude as God swears to him he's going to become a father of a multitude. Jacob, the creep, <laughs> the worm, the twisted one, the heel, becomes Isaac, a prince with God and with men. And so we could go on seeing how the, the changes of names are so significant because in them God's speaking out his his purpose and his ambition and so many, many names in Scripture is significant. So it's really well worthwhile taking a concordance, a good concordance, and then just looking up the names of people 
and also the names of places. I've had so much rich spiritual insight by just taking the trouble to check up on these names. The other thing that's so thrilling is to look in, say, the genealogies of Jesus Christ and see who God has chosen to be the, the human line from which Jesus comes. And you find there's kings and there's prostitutes and there's you know, men of this tribe and that tribe. And, it, and it's really very thrilling to see the, the way God chooses people for his purpose. And that, I think, is the first thing that we learn from this list of names, is that names are important. Important to God. And if God speaks a name to you, and he says to you, for example, I will write on you my new name, and the name of the city of my God. Now, these things are terrifically important. It's interesting how Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, in praying to the Father, one of the things he says, he says, Father, I have kept them in your name. And not only are names important, but the most important name of all is the name which God gave to himself when he said, you can tell them that I am. I am that I am. I'm the eternal existent one. The name Jesus means God my Saviour. The name Emmanuel means God with us. And there's so much rich treasure in names. And Jesus, as part of his ministry, said to him, Father, I've kept them in my name. And one of the most thrilling things for the Christian is that we've been called now to bear his name. And you need to think what that means. It's just like a, if the nearest that I can get to it in human analogies is for some great mighty prince of, of a bygone day who's just Lord and King of everything you can see or touch. Get out of concordance, and that ought to be the ambition of every Christian, is after they've got a Bible, is to get a concordance. And then the second ambition is to use it. <laughs> if you don't know what one is, come and see me quietly afterwards and I'll tell you. And then start to use a concordance and start to trace things through. It's, it's, there's so much reward in tracing something through scripture. And you look at it and you say, I wonder who that is. I wonder why he or she was named here. Because God never says or writes anything without purpose. And so many of the names are so significant. And then you start to, to discover a whole new realm of blessing and of spiritual insight into the word of God. Well, I want to just look now at some of these names and we begin in Romans chapter 16 with let's look at the first one I'm just going to pick out a few and that's Phoebe Phoebe is a lady the name Phoebe is a it's actually a heathen name it's associated with the worship of the goddess Diana or Artemis who was very very uh, popular in the city of Ephesus and this tells me that she was a pagan woman a woman who was born in darkness and was named by her parents after some heathen deity but at some point along the way the light of God had broken into her life and not only that but she'd given herself utterly to the gospel she was a, the woman who actually was trusted with carrying this precious letter to the Romans from um, Corinth, where it was written, across to Rome, quite a journey, 
and you, one suspects that she was one of these several women that are mentioned in Scripture and who are referred to in 1 Corinthians 7 who've given themselves unreservedly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. She was sold out for God. There was a time when she worshipped a stone idol, but now she worshipped the living God. And having come into light, she was now wholly committed to that God. She's called a deaconess. That's what the word literally means. Many translations have the word servant, but it means deaconess. And she is a woman that's uh, been a helper to many, we're told, and to Paul. She wasn't prominent, she wasn't a great preacher. But she was the sort of woman who helped the gospel of Christ forward by just being there to do what was necessary to get the job done. She didn't care what she did, that's the feeling I get. And because of her commitment to Christ and her, her undivided loyalty to Christ, when she goes to Rome with this letter, Paul says, receive her as in the Lord. You're to treat her like you would as if Jesus was coming to visit you. It's a manner worthy of the saints and you help her in whatever matter she may have need of. And I believe that there's a place in the purposes of God for women like this. The gospel wouldn't have gone very far without them in the beginning and it won't go very far without them in this present generation. And as we were uh, talking about on Wednesday, there's going to be an increasing release of women in their ministry. I want to come down to verse 3. Just look at a few of them. And here we meet a familiar couple, a couple known as Priscilla, or here it's Prisca, that's a sort of pet name, and Aquila. Now, you may remember that Paul first met them in Corinth, and we read about them in Acts chapter 18. And we read that they were in Corinth because they'd been thrown out of Rome because of the persecution. <coughs> And uh, they were a family that were uh, not full-time workers. They were just a working couple. They were, at that particular time in Corinth when Paul joined them, they were tent makers. They were self-employed. They seemed to be reasonably, reasonably successful because it seemed that they always had a reasonable-sized house because wherever they went, a church sprang up. You find the thing that hit me with such force was the revelation that God loved Alan Vincent. He didn't love sinners, although that's true, and he didn't love all those who come to him, although that's true. He loved Alan Vincent, and he knows Alan Vincent. It says in another place, uh, I've graven your name upon the palms of my hands. You're individually unique and precious. We find that God's a lover of people and he knows us by name. Now, as we're growing in size as a church, it's getting difficult for the leaders particularly, and for all of us in fact, to know everybody else's name, isn't it? In fact, I, I'm just trying to remember the first names. And you look at these lists and you think, well, who's that? <laughs> but God has no such problem, praise God. And the other thing I learned from this is that Paul also is a great lover of people. Now, Paul's never been to Rome, but he's heard about people and he must have made little notes. And it's always amazed me, in every letter that you read that Paul writes, it ends up with a great stream of greetings to people. Oh, give my love to so-and-so, and praise God for so-and-so. And, and, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a lot of people's names. He must have had, in his sort of mind, 
thousands of saints that he knew who they were, he knew what they had done, he knew some of their needs and their problems, and I would imagine that he was a man who prayed for them all by name. And that, that spoke a lot to me. I remember when that revelation came to me, because I was making excuses, as many of you know. Um, I do occasionally forget something. And I, and I said, oh, well, I, you know, I can't remember names, but God said to me, if you love people, you can. And ever since then, I've realised how important it is to, to remember people's names and to remember about them, because I'm just, this is part of God. And I find this in Paul. It, it staggered me to see his interest and his concern for people's names. Now, the fourth reason why I think names are important and why this passage is important, because it's just a list of all sorts of people. We're going to look at one or two in particular. We can't look at them all. And anyway, some of them we have no idea who they are, except that they're a name that meant something to Paul. They don't mean anything to us. But what I feel is that another part of what we've got to understand from this passage of Scripture is that it's these ordinary people that God has used to to turn this great area of, of the world to Jesus Christ. Lots of little nobodies, and you find again and again this phrase, workers in the Lord have worked hard. Uh, they've been a helper, my fellow workers. You go through this passage and underline it, see how many times it comes. And what, what we find here is not only people, but people who've given themselves as best they know how to the purpose of God, and the result is God's gospel is sweeping with mighty power across this heathen, pagan Europe, and one by one, the nations are being shaken by the power of lots of little nobodies doing their little bit in the power of God. That's why I feel so important. The fourth message then is that God uses ordinary people. And if the Bible was still being written, which it isn't, then in another 10 or 20 years' time, if Paul or someone else was to write to this church, he should be able to write down lots of names and say, well, cool, it was tremendous when I was with you for those few days and bless so-and-so for the way that he does this and I saw the way that he did that. I just watched the way the chairs just miraculously were all rearranged and so beautifully ordered and I saw this and I saw that because these were all fellow workers for the gospel. I looked at the way their children were being brought through into the power and life of the Spirit and I saw so many workers for God and it just blessed my heart. Now that's the kind of people that we ought to be. And that's the kind of people that gladdened the heart of Paul and, and gladdened the heart of God. So, when you read your Bible through next time and you come to these lists of names, don't say, oh, a list of names and move over to the next page. But find that uh, when they were turned out of Rome, they went down to Corinth. And I just want to exhort those who say, well, I don't think God's calling me to full-time ministry. Well, praise God. I believe the norm for most people is not to be called to full-time ministry, so-called, but for everybody to be full-time in whatever employment they're in. There's no such thing as full-time ministry. There's just you either work uh, part of your time in a secular job and the rest is for God, or it's you have the privilege of being supported so that you're 
wholeheartedly uh, able to give your time for God. But the, the commitment is the same. The ministry is the same. He didn't say, oh well, you know, you know we, we'll just come and be faithful at the meetings and give our tithe. Good as that is, that would be a good start. <laughs> but there was a wholehearted commitment. And they obviously were prominent in Rome because they had to flee Rome when the persecution started. And as they came down to Corinth, blow me, another church starts. The other thing that you notice if you go to uh, uh, Acts 18 is that when Apollos came down, a man who was mighty in the scriptures, eloquent, he was obviously one of God's key men who were going to be used by God to build the church. He was a man of great gift and ability. But it was Aquila and Priscilla who instructed him in the ways of God more perfectly. And they took him on one side and they taught him uh, what was lacking in his knowledge and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So not only did they have a, a church in every home they went to, wherever they went they just were fruitful. But they were so knowledgeable of the word of God and yet they weren't professional preachers. But they so knew the word of God that when some keen, zealous, gifted young man who, who knew a lot, got a lot under his belt, but he got a few things wrong, they said, well, let's have Apollos home for lunch and we'll, we'll just gently take this young man under our wing and we'll just instruct him in the ways of God more perfectly. And the result was that Apollos, bless him, received the correction and he went on his way to uh, Ephesus, if I remember correctly, he certainly came back to Corinth on another occasion and Paul credits Apollos with being a waterer of what Paul had planted. It would seem as if Apollos' gift of ministry was so mighty that he could build on the foundations that Paul had laid. And he was ranked with Peter and with Paul and Apollos. They were the three apostolic ministries which established the church in Corinth. Now, if we are a married couple, maybe we're running our own business, maybe we don't feel the call of God into full-time ministry, but that doesn't excuse us. It doesn't mean that we can be casual or careless about really, really getting ourselves thoroughly taught and instructed by God, because who knows, we may have Apollos come. And we could be the ones who, who launch him in his ministry. What a calling. So I just want to exhort us, all of us who are, who are going to be just ordinary working people, if you like, with a heart for God. Let's learn from this tremendous couple. The other thing that you notice is it's always Priscilla and Aquila. They're never mentioned separately. It wasn't Priscilla's husband who dragged or tagged along behind, nor was it Aquila's wife who just went along to the meetings. They were a ministering couple together. And it's interesting that when it comes to churches in the house, and we find several mentioned, one Corinthians 16 and other churches mentioned there, that they, they got going there, and again in Ephesus they did the same thing. You find them moving around the Mediterranean, just ready to move as God directs them. And wherever they go, a church appears. And they were a ministering team together. When it comes to mentioning the church in the house, Aquila's always mentioned first. Now, I don't want to read too much in this, but it's just interesting to note it as you pass. Suggesting that the Spirit's recognising his headship. 
But when it comes to ministry and instructing people in the way of God, it's always Priscilla who comes first, as if she probably knew more about revival and perhaps was a better teacher than her husband. Oh, yeah. Well, we're not going to make a doctrine out of it, but it's interesting to know that. And when Apollos came home for lunch and they sat down, it was Priscilla, as much as Aquila, if not more than Aquila, who could open up the scriptures and say, look, brother, this is tremendous the way you preach this morning, but can we just point out a few things? You haven't quite yet got the full revelation. Because he, it says, why? It says he knew only John's baptism. He hadn't come into the full revelation of Jesus Christ. The full glory of the gospel hadn't yet struck him. And so there's a place for godly couples who may never ever go full time to plant churches, to move at the impulse of God. It's not only missionaries or full time workers who have to know that they're living where God wants them to live. It's everybody in the church. That if you're living in a certain place, you should know that God's put you in that place. And if you want to say, well, why has God put me there? Well, I only know one biblical answer, and that's to be fruitful. John 15, 16 applies to married couples in business as much as it does to anybody else. You didn't choose me, but I chose you, and I placed you. That you should go, and that you should bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. So you should, you should be saying, well, Lord, am I in the right place? Is this where you want me to live? And you should feel as secure about your calling and placing as anyone in so-called full-time. And then once you've settled that, then you can say, right, Lord, you put me here. There's only one purpose that I can see in Scripture, that's to be fruitful. And you can expect to bear fruit to God. And also, you should be as diligent in becoming thoroughly instructed in Scripture as anyone who's hoping to get into the ministry so that if any Apollos has come along, well, you can instruct them in the way of God. And if the JWs come, you can see, lead them to Christ as well. It's not just the few. So let's learn from Priscilla and Aquila. And then... As we move on, we find an interesting word here. I didn't have all my books with me today, but we find in verse 7, Adronicus and Junius. We find in verse 11, Herodion. We find several places Paul speaks about his kinsmen. Down in verse 21, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. Sosipater. And you think, well, what does he mean, kinsmen? Well, I, I just looked up the word as best I could. It can mean one of two things. It can mean a relative, and that's the most usual meaning of the word. I thought, well, if that's true, Paul was pretty active amongst his family, wasn't he? In fact, if you go through the greetings at the ends of the letters, you'll find again and again Paul's greeting is relatives. There is a broader meaning which simply means of his own nationality. But here, he marks out people who are Jews, so one would think that this must be a narrower distinction. I can't prove it to you. But again, it's just something that crossed my mind. I know, for example, an Indian brother who was a Sikh who turned to Christ. His name is Brother Bhakt Singh. You may have heard of him. Well, I know that uh, in his latter years of ministry, 40 members of his family had come to Christ. Now, when he was first converted, they wouldn't have him near the place. They took away his wife. 
and she got, you know, they just dissolved the marriage and took her away, rather like happened to David and um, Michael when uh, Saul got angry with him. The same thing happened. But uh, 14 years later, for the first time, one of his family members came into a meeting that he was preaching at. And when I knew him, which I forget how many years that was now, a few years later, 40 of his family had turned to Jesus Christ. And I thought that was interesting. That here was a man who was fruitful amongst his own family. He could write either to his own nation, but probably to his own relatives, his kinspeople. And they were workers together with him in the gospel. Well, I want to come down now to verse 13. Greet Rufus, a choice man, in the Lord, also his mother and mine. And when I read this a few years ago, I thought, I wonder who this Rufus is. And so I started to trace Rufus through the Bible. And what I discovered was that Rufus, of course is the brother of Alexander, who were the two sons of Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross. And it's interesting to note that they were of Alexandria. We're told that in the Gospels. And that they were presumably either Jews who were uh, domiciled in Alexandria, or they were proselytes. They'd been converted to Judaism. It's not definite that he was an African. He could have been a Jew living in Alexandria. But he could have been an African who was converted to Christ. We just don't know. And he came up to Jerusalem. Probably it's the great ambition of all uh, dispersed Jews or of any proselyte once in their lifetime to come up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Rather like a Muslim will, will somehow make the pilgrimage to Mecca if he possibly can. Then afterwards he dyes his beard orange and that's a sign that he's done it. You know, that he's been up to the... Uh, the yes, that's what they do. If you find an orange-dyed bearded Muslim, that's why, because he's been to Mecca. And he wants everybody to know that he's, he's been to the very centre. And they'll scrape and save and sacrifice to get there somehow. And one would imagine that Simon of Cyrene had, had arrived... In Jerusalem, this was the great event of his life, he'd come up to Jerusalem, either as a proselyte, who was for the first time coming to this great temple that he'd, he'd longed to see, or he could have been a dispersed Jew who had never ever been to Jerusalem before. And then on the day that Jesus staggers up the hill with the cross, suddenly this man who had just come to watch and to observe is pulled out of the crowd. And the cross of Jesus Christ is laid upon him and quite suddenly he finds himself the centre of the stage. He's having to feel the weight and the shame and the pain of the cross of Christ and he walked just beside or just behind Jesus all the way to Calvary and suddenly he was right in the middle. And I just wonder tonight whether maybe you've come along tonight rather to see what's going on at this place and maybe you've been dragged here by a friend and you've thought, well, I'll get right on the edge. You're probably sitting in the back in some corner unless your friend's dragged you near the front by force. 
and you don't want to get involved. You didn't mean it. You thought, I'll just come along and see, but I don't want to get involved. And suddenly, as you come into this meeting, you felt the presence of God. As if God's pulled you centre stage. Well, I tell you, the thing that God wants you to see and feel and experience and appreciate is, is the cross of Jesus Christ. The pain of it and the shame of it and the weight of it, but most of all, the power of it. It's a mighty cross because it sets captives free. And the Bible doesn't record what happened, but all we know is that after that experience, Simon of Cyrene, with his wife and his two sons, become involved in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something happened as he touched the cross, which changed his whole life, and he never, as far as we know, ever went back to Alexandria. The next thing we learn is that the family's in Rome. That, hence, Paul is now sending a greeting. But there's a significant absence, which has often made me wonder, is that after Calvary and Pentecost, when the person persecution broke out, we read of Rufus, we read of Alexander, and we read of the mother of these two boys, but we never ever hear again of Simon. I wonder what happened to him. It could be in that first persecution that broke out that he was killed along with many of the other Christians, but I bet he didn't regret it. And the family, well, it's a little bit of speculation, but I feel it's on, on reasonable evidence. The family probably had to flee Jerusalem along with the persecution associated with Stephen and the others who were killed and martyred at that time, and they fled to Rome. We know that Alexander travelled with Paul. And we know that he stood in Acts 19 in the great city of Ephesus, this city which worshipped idols and which was so corrupt, it worshipped this great, great goddess Diana. And that when Paul was uh, in danger, it was Alexander who was willing to stand up and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. I find, you know, beloved, in these two, no, beloved, in two young men, a tremendous warning. They were sons of the same family, Rufus and Alexander. It's possible, although not certain, that their father was an early martyr for the gospel. He touched the cross of Christ, it touched his whole family, the whole family came into the kingdom, and then dad disappears, and you wonder what happened to him. But I want to just trace in these few minutes... What happened to these two young men? It's all in the scriptures. If I was to turn up all the verses, it would take me a long time. But if you want to find out, get a concordance. <laughs> Look up the name Rufus. Look up the name Alexander. And you'll find out that what I'm telling you is the truth. And we find that Alexander is the man who defends or and seeks to defend the gospel. And he's willing, it would seem, to, to bravely risk his life to, to stand against these people who are opposing the gospel of Christ. There's some real courage in Alexander. But as you read a little more carefully, you also get the feeling that here is an unbridled horse. It's got a lot of strength. A lot of potential for God. But, it's not a man that's going to be easily tamed. He's ready for a fight. He'll defend the gospel, but you're wondering what spirit. And then later on, as you go through the scriptures, you find that he begins to hit some problems. Let's go now, if we may, to 2 Timothy. 
in chapter 4. Verse 12 I'm going to read from. It's another list of names. We could start in on this list of names, but I better not. But Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on your guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Or, as it says in the King James, he stoutly resisted our words. If you come to 1 Timothy and chapter 1, verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you may fight the good fight. I'm reading verse 19 now of 1 Timothy 1. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I've delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. What on earth happened? Well, what happened was this. Somewhere, somehow... Alexander, in all his natural strength, became arrogant. And he wouldn't listen to the words of Paul. Now, his conscience was smiting him. He knew that he was being corrected, and it was a right correction, but he wasn't going to receive it. You can see that same spirit said, Oh, stand up and defend Jesus Christ. That same spirit said, Who do you think you are to talk to me like this? And when Paul, and I can imagine the spirit in which he did it, pleaded with this young man and said, Look, Alexander, you haven't learned everything yet, son. Just please receive our correction. He wouldn't receive it. And although his conscience pricked him, God <laughs> pricked him and said, look, don't stand on your grounds. And You know that you're being spoken to in love and it's a correct word that's being brought to you. But he resisted the word. And because he resisted the word, and because he smothered his conscience, it says he made shipwreck of his faith. And that's what can happen. You can make shipwreck of your faith. And then before you know where you are, you're serving Satan and not God. And as I trace that young man through scripture, years ago I did it the first time. It's always frightened me. And I said, Lord, there's one thing that I never ever want to do is to resist correction. I never want to be arrogant. God, if you find me being arrogant, please smite me in my conscience so I can hear you. I want to be open to correction. I'm afraid. This is what can happen to strong people. They can become strong in their own strength and they can go right off track. And here's Alexander, the, the son of Simon of Cyrene, who we would imagine 
was gloriously saved and then gloriously martyred for Christ. The whole family is in God. And there's Alexander, who's never had his natural strength broken. He's like a, a bucking uh, horse that will not be tamed. And he just shakes off the traces that God has lovingly set on him and he will go his own way and do his own thing. And before long, Satan's got him. He's in error. He finds others of like spirit that they can all join together in. And before long, he's serving Satan and doing Paul much harm. He then starts to attack the one who's loved him and cared for him. And yet Rufus, his brother, is so absolutely different. And here in this Roman letter, Paul can write of Rufus, and he can write of Rufus's mother, who's also Alexander's mother, and you can just imagine what she must be feeling like. There's Rufus serving God, there's her, her husband who's laid down his life for the gospel, and there's Alexander leaving some splinter group in, in error and serving Satan, not God. Now I got all that from the word Rufus. And it, it, it put fear into me years ago, and that fear's still there. And I said, Lord, I always want to be amongst men who are willing to correct me. And I always want to hear what they're saying. I don't want a rebellious, wild horse heart that's going to go its own way and do its own thing. I don't want to end up like Alexander the Coppersmith. I want to be like Rufus. Rufus, whom Paul could say, a choice man in the Lord. Also his mother and mine. What a testimony, a choice man in the Lord. And so we could go on through these <coughs> verses. We find lists of names. We find the church in Rome isn't one great central organization. We find in verse 14 there's a man there, a syncretus, who's got a lot of other names. They could possibly be elders in that branch of the church of Rome and the brethren with them. Then we find there's <coughs> Philologus and Julia and Nerus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints are with them. We find another group there. All the saints are with them. We find the church is, is one church. You can write one letter to Rome and yet there are obviously different congregations that meet together. And that's where I believe God wants to take us. We, we can't possibly go on expanding here. And uh, I don't think God's purpose is just to find a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger building to meet in, except possibly on a monthly basis when we can all come and enjoy the size of what God's doing, but we're going to have to divide into other congregations. Because if we get bigger than two or three hundred, it's not possible for us to function anymore in ministries and gifts. We couldn't have enjoyed what we enjoy tonight. In a company of 10,000, you just couldn't do that sort of thing. So although we're going to be a company of 10,000, we're not all going to be meeting together in one place, except perhaps on a monthly or bi-monthly basis. But we're going to split up into groups. Which means that we've got to have more and more and more leadership. More and more men and women. And notice the women are mentioned with the men who can lead the church of Jesus Christ. 
And in that way it can just go on multiplying and multiplying and multiplying until there's just no end to the growth. And that's really how the Mediterranean was taken by the power of God. It was just this movement of ordinary people giving themselves to God. And there were the sadnesses and there were the casualties. And that ought to fill us all with fear. But there were so many whom Paul can say, my fellow workers, my fellow labourers, they've worked hard, they've just served, they've just been willing to do anything, they've just got this heart, they just want to see the kingdom come. And those names were written down by the Holy Spirit so that centuries and centuries later we might know about them and know from them and learn from them that it's with people that God's concerned. That it's through people that we're going to take this nation for God. It's like a company of people here. We're just going to move out. And we're going to grow. We're going to come into places of responsibility, into leadership. We've got to get down. We've got to study. And we've got to be prepared. Increasing to take more and more responsibility. So that as we grow and as we increase, there's no dilution of the quality of the teaching or of the leadership or of the commitment or of that wholehearted zeal to bring the kingdom of God in. It's not just a few people in the front that have got to be zealous. We've all got to have the same zeal and the same commitment and the same burning heart desire to see the kingdom come. It was because that Paul could write down these great lists of names in every place, really. If you go into any letter, you find there's lists of names. I almost started in on Titus, Timothy, but I thought, well, I better not, because not a list of names there. Most of them fitted with joy. One or two fitted with sadness. Demas has left, this, has left us. He's gone back to the world. That's what he's saying. And then there's John Mark, who went off for a while. He's come back again. He's now in the ministry. And there's things to rejoice about and things to feel sad about. But God's purpose is in and through ordinary people moving and seeing their ministry and getting into it for the purposes of the glory of God. You find in verse 23, you find Gaius, who was a man of some standing. It says he, he was a host to Paul and to the whole church. I thought, what size of house must he have had? At least he must have had a big garden. And I remember that we did that in Bombay. We used to go to somebody's house, the whole church, and into the garden, and we'd have a lovely time. So although they were rich, they used their riches for the purposes of God's kingdom. We find that Erastus is the city treasurer. Not bad. <laughs> Useful bloke in the church. He's the city treasurer and then you find in the same verse there's a chap called Quartus he's just a brother Quartus the brother who's got oh he's just a brother but he's a lovely brother but there's nothing about him he probably you know just lived in a little 10 by 10 room and that was it but these are all men together in the same church in the same kingdom and it's with people that God's concerned. That's, that's what I want us to leave with us. It's with ordinary people like you and me who can, in God, can take this nation for God. And do you believe that? We're God's plan. 
but we're sufficient for God's plan. God amongst us here has got Aquilas and Priscillas. He's got men of prominence and position. He's got choice men like the Rufuses. And there will be the occasional sadness like the Alexandras. There'll be the Demuses who love this present world and go back to it. There'll be the, the casualties and you can almost see some of them before it becomes visible and evident. But there's a whole host of people, men and women, who are workers, who want to see the kingdom come, who, who believe that this gospel is something mighty, it's worth giving themselves for. And as they just slot into their various functions and ministries, then relentlessly and gloriously, God adds multitudes to the church of Jesus Christ. And it's all summarized in verse 24. It's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's divine ability freely given from God. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. He says, it's the grace of God which labors mightily in me. And so we can all be beneficiaries of the grace of God. Now, to him, it's just like a wonderful... Um, epilogue here um, doxology or whatever what's the word, I can't think of it now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. This little company of people, because they were established in the gospel and believed the gospel, now it's being made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. Let's just pray for a moment, shall we?
going to read right through the chapter. Romans chapter 3. If I read with puffs in between, you'll understand why. Then, well, let's just go back a little bit into chapter 2. Verse 26. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then if some did not believe? Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words, and mightest prevail when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace have they not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we who know that whatever the law says... I'm sorry, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable or guilty before God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, as a propitiation.